This comes up a lot, right? There's two types of people. Uh, those who put their shopping carts back where they belong and those who are just reckless and leave them out there to be missiles in the Oklahoma wind to everyone's cars. Two types of people. There's those types of people who uh, read the news and there's those people that make the news. Um, today, what I want to kind of talk about is, is the two types of people, those who know their purpose and those who don't. Because it makes a drastic difference in your life. The shopping cart thing does too. Don't be those people. Um, I saw someone on, on social media post a couple weeks ago that there is, uh, there is zero overlap between people who are successful in life and people who don't put the cart back where it belongs. Just choose correctly, okay? It's Oklahoma. They've got a, a spot for those. But, but more importantly, understanding that your life has purpose changes how you wake up in the morning. Understanding that, that your life has purpose changes your short-term planning so you can achieve your long-term goals of being the person who's uh, achieving the purpose that you have in your life. There's so many people who wake up and all they think about is, I wonder what I'll eat today. I wonder what I'll watch today. I wonder what I'll do this minute or next minute because it doesn't really matter what I do. All I'm doing is using oxygen and consuming and producing energy. And you just go through day after day after day like that. God did not design us as humans to live that way. He designed us to have purpose. And God gives every one of us purpose. God gives every one of our lives meaning. He expects us to be, uh, God made us in his image. And part of that is God is a active and creative God. And he desires for us to be active and creative people in his image. He wants us to live with meaning and to live with purpose. And so in Psalm 139, there's the, the verses that are so often on nurseries all over Christian families. I think we have it in one of our cry rooms in the back of here, where it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Before one of them came to be, they were written in your book. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. None of the nurseries have verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? Not in the nurseries. Do I not abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. The nurseries pick back up in verse 23. <laughs> Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
We picked up in verse 13, the section that is before it talks about how God is always with us. And, and I want to kind of go through this too. What, what I hope you see is this, this psalm that is so often uh, clip art for nurseries has incredible depth to it. And it shows that God can search us and know us, not babies, adults. This is a grown-up psalm. It is beautiful in its use of, of children, and it's beautiful with the idea that God has done something in a baby. That's all there. But this doesn't stop being true for you when you get a driver's license. This doesn't stop being true for you when you've retired, and it's a long time since you left the nursery. This psalm is a psalm for all of life. And, and so it begins like this, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God knows you. Evan talked about it in his communion thoughts this morning. God knows your words. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows it when you wake up, and he knows it when you lie down, and he's in front of you, and he's behind you. And you can't go anywhere where God can't be and where God won't be. He knows you. And he was there when he created you in, in your mother. He knew you before you were born. He was there and, and was part of the craftsmanship that, that took place before you were even born, creating you with the gifts that you have and the abilities that you have and the flaws that you have and the personality that you have. He gave you all of that and he knows it. And part of that, that knowledge that God gave you all of those things is that God knows your purpose. You may not. You may just know what's going to be for lunch, but God knows more about that uh, when it comes to you. He knows your whole life, the pages that are there. Now, the psalm gets kind of complicated if we kind of go all the way through that, and, and we start asking questions like, well, does that mean that I have a choice? Does that mean that, I can, that my life is still unscripted, or is it all predetermined? And you get into some weird things. And if you're asking those questions and using psalms to figure it out, you're going to get in trouble. Because psalms is, is intended to be uh, prayer-filled. Psalms is intended to reveal to us the, the heart of the believer in good times and in bad. And the heart of the believer knows that God is intimately connected to us in ways that, that we can't even understand. And the psalmist says that. I can't even fathom how much you know me. And I can relate to that. I can relate to that sentiment that it's hard to even imagine how much God knows me. Uh, last year, the population of our planet uh, passed the 8 billion mark. Uh, 
Eight billion people live in our world. Uh, I read somewhere, I didn't do this math myself, I don't even know how to begin doing this, that if you took all the people in the world and they held hands uh, and you put them side by side in a line, that line would go all the way around the world 18 times. That same line, if you put people and connected them one to another, would go all the way from the earth around the moon and back twice. That's a lot of people. I don't know how far away the moon is, but it's not close. It's a long ways away. And it goes around that twice, around the whole world 18 times. And that stat, whoever wrote it, wrote it a year ago. It's more than that now. I don't you know how to even factor this. There's a website uh, that the UN has uh, where you can actually go look at the population of Earth, and they have little people. And you could just scroll down and look at all the people. And then you can say, go into live mode. And it just adds a person, adds a person, adds a person, adds a person. It's a wild website. And I look at that, and I'm like, that's so many people. And God looks at that and knows all of them. And when I think about a line wrapping around the world 18 times, I think, I, I'm so, so small. I'm so in, insignificant in the scope of that number of humans. And when you look at that, that chart and you see the number of deaths and how often someone is dying, it, it seems insignificant. The truth is that when one person dies, it matters a lot to the people that love them the most. When one person is born, it matters a lot to the people that know them the most. It's not just another person, another person. It's Mary, it's George, it's Elizabeth. It's, it's all of the things that we know about the people we love the most. And what's incredible is every one of those people is like that to God. And it's hard to even imagine what that's like. Uh, on one occasion, I was, I was visiting with someone, and, and they asked me, do you believe that God is big enough and powerful enough to answer your prayers? And I said, absolutely. I don't have any problem believing that God is, is big enough to, to answer any prayer that I ask him. He can do anything. There is no request that I could put before God that he would look at and go, that's just a little bit out of my pay grade. He can do all of it. The problem I have is believing that when I sit in a room, I close my eyes and I go to God in prayer, I have a hard time believing that in the line that goes around the world 18 times, that he can be present to someone as small as me. That's what's hard for me. I struggle believing that, that God can be, uh, can, can in the midst of all the suffering in the world, and we're in a world right now that, that as is in war and that is in crisis and that is filled with anxiety, and God's got some big problems that he needs to take care of, and I've got some little stuff that I need to put on his list. And it's hard for me sometimes to believe that God can be not only big enough to answer the questions, but small enough to be present to me with my needs and my requests. And yet, he was there in the secret place when I was being knit together. And yet, God knows the number of hairs on my head. And yet, God knows the words on my mouth before they even leave my tongue. He knows all of that because he's big enough to be small enough to be present to me with my littleness. And that's amazing. And in the midst of that, he knows my purpose. 
because he gave me the gifts to be able to accomplish what he needs me to do in the world. Last week, we looked at the story of Joseph and how uh, Joseph, in, in the midst of all of the suffering and enduring and persevering that he went through in his life, and it would be so easy for Joseph to have said, why am I suffering endlessly and for years? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. But at the end of the story, his brothers come, and it's the brothers that got him into all this trouble in the first place and that launched him on his, his tour of suffering in Egypt. And the brothers come to him, and he tells them, you intended and designed and wove harm into my life. But all along through those circumstances, God was weaving a different plan, a different tapestry, a different masterpiece in my life. And what God was weaving was not intended for my harm. It was intended to save lives. And so now Joseph in that moment says, you designed circumstances that would hurt me. God rewove them into something that, that not only was good for me, but is saving other people's lives. And God does that in our lives all the time. The world comes at us and intends harm at us. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to weave these circumstances for a good you can't even imagine. I'm going to save lives. Joseph's brothers tried to take his life, and it ended up saving theirs by God's good weaving in Joseph's difficult circumstances. Today we're going to be looking at, at Moses and how Moses' life shows us that, that he was born with a purpose that God is already working out in his life at the moment that he is born. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, we read that the time of Joseph has now passed, and Joseph has died and gone to be uh, with his ancestors. And after that happens, a new Pharaoh came into power, a Pharaoh that knew neither Joseph nor what he had done for Egypt. And if you remember the story at the end of uh, Joseph's life, he's second in command over all of Egypt. He knows that there's going to be seven years where there's extra, extra stuff and seven years of famine. Uh, so he gets put in charge. He gets an aggressive taxation plan where he takes extra from all the people. And in the seven years of famine, he sells it back to them. And Egypt becomes the most powerful empire in the world. Uh, that's how Egypt came to have its power was through Joseph's uh, implementing uh, of the, the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. But now a time has come where the people of the Hebrews, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are now growing so plentiful in the land of Egypt that the Egyptians look over there and say, you know, there's a lot of them, and they're very blessed, and they're becoming increasingly prosperous. At some point, they might look at us and say, hey, we think we should be in charge. And so Pharaoh goes to the Hebrew midwives and he tells them, hey, I, to make sure that your people don't become too plentiful, here's what I want you to do. Uh, it, when a baby is born, uh, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. And the midwife says, great, we hear you. We'll, we'll uh, let you know how that goes. Uh, Pharaoh leaves. The midwives go back. They uh, let the baby boys live. And Pharaoh's walking around and he's going, man, it looks like there's a lot of little boys out here. And he calls the midwives in and he says, you're not doing your job. And they say, you know, they call us, we get there and the babies are already born and they leave. Uh, Hebrew women are just really good at having babies. They're not even using us anymore. So their deception continues to bless and prosper the Hebrew nation. And after a while of doing this, Pharaoh tells the people, he says, listen, here's the thing. I'm just going to give you a command that if, when a boy is born, you just throw him in the river. And so when Moses is born and God has a purpose for him, his mother doesn't throw him in the river. She places him in the river. 
in a little basket. She hides him for a while until she can't hide him anymore, and then she puts him in a basket, and it's this waterproof basket that goes floating down the river, and his sister Miriam is following him to see what happens to him, and, and he gets down the river, and it's Pharaoh's uh, daughter that finds him. And she says, this is one of the Hebrew baby boys. And I want to take care of this baby boy and I want to adopt him, but I can't nurse him and provide for him right now. And Miriam steps up and says, hey, I happen to know someone who could nurse him and take care of him right now, if you could uh, benefit from that. She says, that would be great. I'll hire her. And so now Moses' mother, because God has a purpose for him and his family, Moses' mother is being hired to be the mother of her son. And she raises him for several years, and she takes care of him, and she tells him stories, and she teaches him Hebrew songs, and, and dresses him in Hebrew clothing until the time comes that it's time for him to go and be raised in Pharaoh's house and wear Egyptian clothes and learn the Egyptian language and songs and stories. And he becomes a, a, a bicultural adopted child being raised in Pharaoh's own household. Why? Because God's got a purpose for him. And God knit him together in the womb in such a way that he was giving him the skills and the abilities that he would need to be able to save the lives of the Hebrew people in Egypt. One day, as an adult, he sees an Egyptian man mistreating a Hebrew slave, and he goes up and he kills the Egyptian. And he tries to bury him, but it's hard to bury bodies in sand. It just keeps filling in, and word gets out that he's killed this Egyptian. And he realizes that Pharaoh's going to kill him, and so he flees Egypt to save his own life. And he gets to a land called Midian, and when he gets to Midian, he goes to a, a well, and, and there's some guys that are there, and they're driving off these seven daughters. There's a man there in Midian who's a priest, and he's got seven daughters and no sons, and, and so the other shepherds are driving off these seven daughters, these seven shepherdesses. And Moses stands up for them, and he takes the cover off the well, and he brings them back, and he says, get, water your flocks, water yourself, and he provides for them. And they go back and tell Dad, and Dad says, well, get him over here for dinner. He's going to marry one of you. <laughs> and he does. Uh, marries Zipporah. And one day, now that Moses is a Midianite shepherd, he's out tending the flocks, and he looks up on a mountain, and he sees a bush that's on fire. And it keeps burning, and it keeps burning, and it keeps burning, and at some point, he's like, I'm going to go see what's on fire. And this is, I think, a very natural instinct. I think almost all of us, when we see smoke coming from somewhere in our town, we just start driving towards it. You want to know what's on fire. And he starts going to where the smoke is, and when he gets there, God speaks to him out of the bush. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. This is in Exodus chapter 3. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. 
So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Uh, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The famous sending and commissioning of Moses out of the burning bush. And Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses also saw the cruelty of the Egyptians once, and he killed a guy to try and bring about justice. But the Hebrews the next day questioned him. And his experience is, if I try and get involved in starting some kind of an uprising and a rebellion, they're not going to be willing to follow me, and Pharaoh's going to kill me. That's why I ran here in the first place. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses says, who am I that I would go? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm sending you. And here's the first thing you need to get from this message today, is if God has knit you together in the womb and God is sending you, you're good enough. God has given you all that you need to achieve the purposes he put in front of you. And it's not important that you're good enough. What's most important is that you trust that the one who sends you is good enough. And if he's sending you, then you're going to achieve what he sends you to achieve. So Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, oh yeah, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is the what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God says, I'm enough. I'm God. You need to go. And he tells them to go and assemble all the people and take them to a land flowing with, with uh, milk and honey. And he says, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the God of the Hebrews are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. After that, he will let you leave. In verse 4, Moses answers again. Even after being told all this by God, Moses says, but what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And he throws it on the ground. And we're skipping this part because I'm scared of snakes. And then he said, put your hand inside your cloak. And so Moses put his hand in his cloak. And when he took it out, his skin was leprous because it had been white as snow. And he puts it back in and he takes it out and it's better like the rest of his flesh. 
And the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, one of the interesting things that, that most people don't know about the ten plagues is that, that ten of them happened to Egypt. Four of them also happened in Goshen. Goshen is the part of Egypt where the Hebrews lived. You see, the people didn't believe Moses when he showed up. The people didn't trust God. They'd been in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they'd forgotten that God was good and that God was all-powerful, and they'd become skeptics. They were more believers in Pharaoh's power than God's power. And so the first four plagues happen in both Egypt and Goshen because they needed to be reminded of God's power. Moses then says to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses says, I don't know if you know me. I'm not very good at talking. I'm not very good at speaking. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And Moses has run out of excuses at this point. And so he just goes with this one. Uh, Pardon me, Lord, which is good. He's respectful. Pardon me, Lord. Please send someone else. The Lord's anger burned against Moses, finally burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way. He's going to go with you. I'll give both of you the words that you need to say when you go to the king of Egypt. And here's here's what I, I want you to hear today. There are so many times in life that we think, maybe that's my purpose over there. But we look at that, that that we believe that God has given us as our purpose, and we think, I'm not good enough. And what God tells Moses is what God needs you to hear, is that if God has given you a purpose, then he knit you together when you were being formed in the secret place with everything that you need to succeed at that purpose. And not only that, but the one that sends you goes with you. So what you lack, he will make up in you. And so if there's any fear that you have, any shame that you have, yeah, but you don't know my my past. Moses was a murderer. Did God say, listen, you've got to serve a few years for that murder you committed? No, he goes, listen, I know who you are. I made you the way you are. I'm sending you. Go, and you're going to succeed. But we're like Moses. We look at the purpose and we think, I can't do that. If you can't do that, God wouldn't have given you that purpose. But if God gave you that purpose and he gives us all a reason to live, he gives us all some kind of mission, he gives us all some kind of a reason that we're here to make and shape the world to his glory. For Joseph, it was to save everybody's lives. For Moses, it's to set his people go. You've got a purpose. It may not be that big. Moses and Joseph are pretty big guys in history. But God has chosen you to make a difference. 
and you've got your list of excuses. I'm not enough. God says, you going after my masterpiece? Because I'm the artist that made you. If you think you're not enough, you're telling me I didn't do a good enough job of making you to do the thing you're supposed to do. God is enough. God made you enough. God gave you everything you need to succeed at the tasks that he's putting in front of you. And when you choose to live without a purpose, you call God a liar. Because he promises that he'll give you what you need. He already has. He promises that if he sends you, he'll go with you. He always will. And so if you choose to not do something after that, it's you not believing that God's good on his word. But when instead you recognize that God has given you all that you are, all that you have, all the blessings that have been given you, have, have been given to you so you can bless the world forward out of all of that because God's given you a purpose and a sense of mission and calling. You're calling God a speaker of truth and a creator that is worthy of being praised, whose tool is trustworthy when you put it in his hand to do his purposes in your life and in the world around you. So there's really just two kinds of people in the world. The people who live with purpose and the people who call God a liar. Today you get to choose which kind of person you want to be. If you need to respond to the message this morning or to anything else, please come forward this morning as we stand and sing.